I was talking to Josh yesterday, and, and he said, well, how's, how's things going? How's your week? We were talking about the service today, and I said, I have discovered how intimidating it is to preach the most famous parable Jesus ever told. Because all of you, most of you, have known this parable from childhood. Churches are named after this parable. Parachurch organizations are named after this parable. Even outside the church, the term Good Samaritan is ingrained in our culture. People might not know the passage that it comes from, but they know the term. This parable has been preached on and sung about. It has been dramatized in TV and in movies. Last night, about 11.30, Will and I were sitting, we were watching television. He looked over at me and he said, what parable are we, you teaching on tomorrow? And I said, the Good Samaritan. And he looked at me and he went, classic. How do you preach something everyone already knows? That was the question I was wrestling with this week. But God is very gracious. As I started going over the parable in my mind, I wasn't even reading it. I was just kind of walking through it in my mind. I realized something. God showed me something. Something that either I knew before and had forgotten, or something that was brand new to me. Some of you may hear what I'm going to say, and you may think, well, of course, David, why are you even bringing that up? It's so, it's so plain. But maybe there's at least one person who will be able to join me in saying, I've never really thought about that. I didn't realize that before. The Good Samaritan is a parable that Jesus tells in response to a single question. Who is my neighbor? And in response to that question, Jesus tells what would become the most famous parable in history. And he didn't answer the question. As a matter of fact, I think the whole point of the parable is Jesus did not want to answer the question. I might dare say he did not like the question. Yet it is a question that most of us wrestle with continually. Who's my neighbor? If you're a note taker and you grabbed one of the worship guides this morning, let's look at this life truth together as we start diving into this parable. What we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that Jesus is not interested in defining who our neighbor is. Rather, He wants to ask us a far more critical question. Now, I'm not going to give you that question yet. We're going to leave that line blank. But my aim is that before we are done today, you will be able to fill in that line with the question that Jesus does want to ask us from this parable. But it is not to define who our neighbor is. So let's set the stage. Let's get the context. It was a very common practice in the first century that rabbis or teachers would receive questions publicly from scholars, from Old Testament lawyers, scribes. And so Jesus received these questions often and in in the context, Luke says this was one of the occasions where he publicly takes a question from a scribe. And the, the question the scribe asks is, what must I do to have eternal life? 
Now, Luke tells us that the scribe did not ask this from a place of authenticity. He didn't really want to know the answer. He was actually trying to test Jesus or to trap him into making a mistake and saying something in error. But Jesus, of course, understood that trap was being set. And so he asked a question in return. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, as an expert in Old Testament law, what do you think you need to do? What is your answer to that question? And so the scribe said correctly, I should obey the two great commandments. I should love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I should love my neighbor as I love myself. Jesus affirms that is accurate, and Jesus tells the scribe, do this and you will live. Now, what we know in the fullness of the New Testament is that Jesus means do this perfectly and you will live. Perfectly love God, perfectly love your neighbor and you will live. And we know that no one can meet that standard. That is why Jesus descended from heaven. Jesus came to perfectly do the law of loving God and loving a neighbor. And then by grace, he offers his perfect obedience to us to be applied to us when we faithfully trust him with our lives. So the scribe, having received this answer from Jesus, he now asks a follow up question. And Luke again tells us his motivation. Luke says he asked this question to justify himself. What does that mean? Well, it's something that we're familiar with because it is something we do all the time. To justify ourselves means we want to prove that we're right. It means that we want to prove that we're doing the right thing, that our thoughts and our ways, our behaviors, that they're right. We most often justify ourselves in response to correction. Whether that correction is from someone else or whether that correction is conviction from God, that is most often when we try to justify ourselves. Justifying yourself is a work that comes from pride. It is often paired with its partners being quick to speak and slow to listen. When you receive correction and immediately... Your fists go up to defend yourself. The opposite of justifying yourself is to embrace humility. To respond to correction by first being slow to speak and taking time to say, okay, let me think about what's being said. Let me pray about this. Maybe there's something I need to learn here. You may not like the approach of the person, their method may not have been great, but that doesn't mean there's not something to learn. So the scribe wants to justify himself. Jesus has said something, looked at this scribe in such a way that he felt the need to say to Jesus, I'm good. <laughs> Jesus, you're telling me to do this and I'll live. You're saying that like I haven't been doing it. Like, I haven't been loving God. Like, I haven't been loving my neighbor. I have been. But just so you and I agree, just so I, I, I know that we're talking about the same thing, what do you mean by neighbor? 
tell me who my neighbor is. That's his question. Within that question is a revelation. That scribe didn't think all people were defined as a neighbor. He didn't think all people deserved the sacrificial care that we reserve for ourselves. The common Jewish understanding of neighbor was my people. A neighbor was my race, other Jews. And you and I, when we come to these parables, we place ourselves in the parables just like Eric was asking us to do a moment ago. And so we have to think about this. And and the truth is, when it comes to who is our neighbor, we probably do the same thing. The modern day rendition might be to say, a neighbor is my kind of people. It's different for everybody. But somewhere in our hearts and our minds, we draw a line. Somewhere in our hearts and minds, we draw a line on who our neighbor is. That line may be about ethnicity. It may be about social status. It may be about religious tradition. It might be about political leanings. It might even be about orientation. But somewhere we feel justified in doing good for some, but not for them. And so Jesus answers this question from the scribe, who is my neighbor, by telling a story. And as with all other parables, we're not sure if this is something that Jesus completely makes up, or if this is something that has actually happened. But what we do know is that He is very purposeful in speaking this parable to the pride and to the prejudice that is in this expert of the law who desired to show himself as good. I love people. So he tells of a traveler going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was an actual road. It would have been very well known to the listeners. Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than Jericho. To get from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been about 17 miles and you would have descended about 3,000 feet down a mountainous road. There were many places for robbers to hide and ambush people, and absolutely it would have been a dangerous journey. And so there's a traveler. He is beaten, he is robbed, he is left dying on this path. Two men will pass by him, temple workers, who were held in high esteem in the Jewish culture. One a priest, one a Levite. No mention is made as to why they didn't stop to help. We can assume there's a reason. They had their own self-justification for what they saw and why they passed by. Maybe they thought he was dead. And for them, as a priest and a Levite, if they were to touch a dead body, they would be ritually unclean and they would be unable to perform their religious responsibilities in the temple. For a while. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they thought the robbers were still nearby. So if we stop and we help this person, the same thing's going to happen to us. Maybe it was simply a really long day. 
And they had a long journey ahead of them. And honestly, it was easier to not be inconvenienced. To just keep their eyes straight ahead and pretend they didn't see the victim. Whatever the reason, they keep traveling. But Jesus says a third man comes along. A Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews have a long history of connection in the Bible and dispute. And in the days of Jesus, these two groups, Jews and Samaritans, were religious enemies. They were ethnic enemies and they were ideological enemies. And the Samaritan took pity on who we assume is a Jewish victim. And the picture that Jesus paints is really striking. And keep in mind that Jesus is giving us these details and there's a reason that he's doing this. He says that this Samaritan goes, he doesn't say just checks on him and, and, and waits for somebody to come by and, and, and try to get him some help. The Samaritan goes to him and he bandages his wounds and he starts to pour oil and wine on him. In other words, he gets close to this man. If we allow our imagination to go there, he gets his blood, this man's blood on him while he personally, intimately addresses his wounds. He picks him up. He puts him on his own animal. In other words, he increases his own personal danger because if those robbers are still nearby, he has now slowed himself down and made himself an even bigger target. He's not going to be able to run away from them now that he's put this man on his animal. He takes him to an inn. He doesn't drop him off. He stays with him overnight. He cares for him in the wee hours of the morning until daybreak. And then having to go on his way, the next morning he pays two days' wages. Some scholars said that would have been enough for three weeks of care in the inn. And then he tells the innkeeper, I'll be coming back through. And if you need more money, if he needs more time, when I come back through, I'll check and I'll pay you anything else that I need to pay you. So let's make some observations from the text, from this story, this parable that Jesus tells. First of all, Jesus supposes that a person who truly obeys the two great commands from their heart will be recognized by their display of generous, compassionate acts of mercy. He supposes that if you are someone who truly obeys the two great commands from your heart, not just externally, but from your heart, that what people will see in your life are generous, compassionate acts of mercy toward other people. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that you can always tell what kind of tree is growing if you look at its fruit. You will always be able to identify a tree, maybe not by its, its trunk, its limbs, its leaves, but it will bear some kind of fruit and you will then be able to tell what kind of tree it is. And then he uses that analogy and he applies it to people. And he says you, you will eventually be able to tell 
who is a godly person and who is an ungodly person by what their life produces, by their works. Works and faith are deeply connected in the Bible. It's extremely important for us to always remember works do not produce faith. But it's also very important for us to remember that faith always produces good works. When Jesus finishes this narrative of these four travelers, he says to the scribe, all right, pick out the neighbor in my story. Of those three men who came across that victim, which one proved that he's a neighbor? Not which one would have said he's a neighbor. Which one proved that he was a neighbor? The scribe answers, notice he doesn't even say Samaritan. Can't bring himself to say it. He says, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, yeah, that's the neighbor. Go and do the same. You say you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You say you love your neighbor as you love yourself. So here's what I say to you. Go and show mercy like this Samaritan did. That will be the sign that you love God in your neighbor. He doesn't say that will be the way that you inherit eternal life. He says that will be the way you show you have eternal life. See, Jesus is circling back to that original question. Essentially, how am I saved? The answer is, love God, love your neighbor. Well, you and I need to ask of ourselves the same question Jesus is asking of the scribe. Okay, well, what does that look like? What does it look like in my life to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as I love myself? How do you identify someone who's keeping these commandments? And Jesus, in this story, makes it clear to us, it has nothing to do with position. It has nothing to do with what service you do in the church. The Jews would think, surely the priest loves God and loves his neighbor. Surely the Levite, Loves God and loves, loves his neighbor. That's not even a question. Surely the pastor of the church loves God and loves people. That's not even a question. Surely that person that I see every single week dedicating their time and serving, surely they love God and love people. Surely. A priest and a Levite were two of the most prestigious positions, offices in all of Israel. Look how long they've been in the temple. Look how long they've been working there. Look at all the worship acts they do. Look how people look up to them. They are bound to keep the great commands. But when the opportunity came, neither one of them displayed an authentic love. Both displayed a desire to preserve themselves, and they showed a callous disregard for someone else. So Jesus is saying, if you're really rooted in growing, a term we use here, if you're really rooted in growing in love for God and love for neighbor, then your life will over time produce generous, sacrificial acts of mercy to other people in need. 
that will abound out of you. That's what Jesus is looking for in His people. What we've been talking about now for several weeks is hearts that understand the mercy God has shown them will naturally show that mercy to others. When we are filled with gratitude for what God has done for us and we're truly thankful, then what will naturally happen is we'll forgive others. We'll have mercy to others. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that even at times we'll be really glad to do it. I am saying that naturally we will we'll just act. I can't withhold forgiveness. I can't not show mercy here. Look at what God has done for me. So I'm going to work through this. I'm going to battle for this. I'm going to fight to obey because of what He has done. Furthermore, in your notes, Jesus shows us that acts of godly mercy are not constrained by bias or logic. Acts of godly mercy are not constrained, not limited, by personal bias or by logic. Now, I put there godly mercy because I'm talking about the kind of divine mercy that we've experienced. When we act out of that, when we act out of gratitude for divine mercy, that mercy is not limited by personal bias or by logic. You and I cannot understand how shocking it would have been for Jesus' listeners to hear Him make a Samaritan the hero of this story. The bias of the Jews would assume that the Samaritan was a pagan idolater who would spit on that victim as he walked by. And Jesus made him the hero. Logic says... The Samaritan, even if he was a good man, he wouldn't show this kind of generosity to a Jewish man. Jesus could have told the story and put a Jew as the hero, and it would have still been shocking the generosity that this man showed. But for them to hear this was a Samaritan, who we consider an enemy and they consider us to be an enemy, this was intentional by Jesus. And we need to wrestle with why He chose to do it this way, to tell the story this way. Because what Jesus is doing is He is communicating that a person who really loves God will do acts of mercy that are not limited by their own personal biases and their logic. And we all have that. We all have that. Because God is not constrained by those things. God is not limited by those things. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught that God has chosen in this life to give certain blessings to both the good and the evil. All people enjoy God's sun, the sun in the sky that warms them. All people on earth are refreshed by His rain that falls from heaven. God is good to both His people and those who are not His people, to the just and the unjust. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on there to say in that passage, church, Christians, 
If you only show love to people who show love to you, you're not displaying the mercy of God. Because everyone does that. Everyone is kind to those who are kind to them. Everyone loves those who love them. Everyone shows mercy to their kind of people. God is displayed when you love in spite of your prejudice. When you love past your bias and you show mercy to someone that you would consider an enemy. Remember last week how we studied that Jesus taught the key to greatness is humility? Who showed humility in this parable? The Samaritan. Who is the greatest in the parable? The Samaritan. Whether they were real people or not, Jesus ensured that for the next 2,000 years, the priest and the Levite would be symbols of lost opportunity and callous disregard for human suffering. And He told this parable in such a way that for the next 2,000 years, the Samaritan is seen as a role model who has motivated countless numbers of people and groups to sacrificial living for centuries. The Good Samaritan has become a symbol, a term applied to those who care about human suffering and want to ease the dire condition of their fellow man. Humility brings greatness. And Jesus ensured we saw that in this parable. In your notes, Jesus knows, and we can see from this text, that mercy requires much more than knowledge. To be a merciful person requires much more than knowledge. That scribe had all the right answers. He knew He was to love God. He knew He was to love His neighbor. Most of us, we know that. We're we're not lacking that knowledge. We've been in church long enough. We've heard enough sermons. We understand the will of God. We know we are to love Him. We know we are to love our neighbor. We know we're supposed to love our enemies. We know we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. We know we're supposed to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. We know we're supposed to live generously and sacrificially. We know we're supposed to show mercy. We don't lack the knowledge. We know this parable. We agree with it. But then that moment comes. And it comes for all of us. When it's time to take what we know and do it. And put it into practice. When that person or that situation is right in front of us, in our path, on our doorstep, that person that we simply do not like, we do not agree with them, they are the one that we oppose and they oppose us. 
or we are faced with a situation. A situation that is really hard for us to understand. A situation that we really don't want to be in and we don't want to deal with. And that is the moment we seek to justify ourselves. I know, but wait a minute. Not, not this person. N- not, not this person. No. Not this situation. You see, you see, yeah, I know that. I know I'm to forgive. I know I'm to show mercy. I know I'm to, to be kind. I know what God has done, but wait a minute. But not this person because this thing is different. This person is different. This situation is different. We justify ourselves. The escape clause, the way out. I may be defiled if I do this. I may be hurt if I do this. I'm going to keep my eyes straight ahead and I'm just going to pretend I didn't see this need. You know, in some ways, what Jesus said is so simple. Go show mercy. Simple, church. Go show mercy. We've been put through the ringer for about 25 minutes now. We see ourselves in this parable. It's not good. Go do mercy. End of sermon. Let's eat. It's not that simple. It's way too complex. Which is why, in your notes, abiding with Jesus is the only way to do what is otherwise impossible for us to do. Abiding with Jesus is the only way to do what is otherwise impossible for us to do. I am really aware, in my own life and in preaching, how burdensome the Christian life can sometimes feel if we let it. I I don't imagine there's a person in here that's really listening that feels really good about yourself right now. (laughs) Because we're thinking about how often we're not merciful people. Or we're not listening. And you know what? It's okay for the gospel to tear us down as long as we also know how the gospel builds us up. You cannot show this kind of mercy in your own power, period. You will fail. It seems impossible because it is. You cannot be divinely merciful without divine help. But Jesus is the most merciful man who ever lived. And He is willing to make you a merciful person to do acts of mercy that reflect Him if you stay close to Him. He tells us in John 15, apart from Me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing I'm telling you to do. Seems ironic, but it's the point of the Gospel. Here's everything you need to do. You can't do any of it without Me. But if you'll stay close to me, if if I live in you, 
If, if you will put your trust in me and you will abide with me, you will bear much fruit. You will be able to do all the things that I've done. I don't want to stretch this too far, but Jesus is both the beaten traveler and the good Samaritan. Jesus is the only one who has loved God and neighbor perfectly. And He was the one who was beaten and robbed and left on the side of the road for dead. He died that He might save us who believe in Him. Jesus is the only one who can show mercy to us when we ask for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the only one who is alive today willing to help us do all the things that He is telling us to do. So when Jesus gives us this call, go and do mercy, that can only be accomplished if you have first obeyed the call, come follow me. Come follow me, abide with me, and you will go do these acts of mercy. How do we abide? We abide when we praise Him for the mercy He has shown us continually. When we sing when we give testimonies, when we talk to others about the mercy that God has shown us, we abide with Christ. When we let Him speak to us through His Word, when we give ourselves to His Word that He might build us up in His Word, we're abiding with Him. We abide when we get on our face in prayer, when we go out to be alone and we go prayer walk and we confess to God that we are self-righteous justifiers of our own selves and that we can't be merciful and we can't be godly without Him and we ask Him over and over to help us, we are abiding with Him. We abide, by, we abide with Christ when we persistently and consistently join together for encouragement in the Word and in prayer. When we pray for each other, we build each other up. Agape, I'm going to keep banging this drum until we get it. Jesus said He came to purify for Himself a people zealous for good works. And then when you get to Hebrews, He says, Church, stir one another up to be zealous for good works. I'm going to keep banging this drum you will stunt your love for God and neighbor if you isolate yourself from biblical community. Period. It is not optional in the Christian life. Joining together with other believers to study the Word, to pray, to worship, to encourage one another, it's, it's not optional. I'm not saying that act gets you to heaven. I'm saying you will not be able to love God and love others unless you have one another, period. I say, by this word, and if you want to argue with me from the word, I will meet with you, I'll sit across from you, and, and we'll talk as long as you want to. Every person in this church should be in a Discipling community group of some kind. Whether you join in ours or you start your own, but you should be in a community where you are joining with other believers 
to motivate one another to good works. And every person who comes into this church should be invited into those groups. Not because we have to as much as because we get to, because God has mandated that we do that. So I guess in a way we have to, but we should be joyful in it. We abide that way. We're not going to learn mercy if we ignore that mandate to give ourselves to community. So let me go back to this life truth. We can't do any of this without the help of Jesus. We can't do any of this without abiding with Him. And He has given us means to abide with Him. And we exercise those means both individually and together, corporately. This life truth, the scribe said, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, don't ask that. I'm not interested in telling you who your neighbor is. I'm not interested in defining for you what a neighbor looks like. I don't want you to think that way. A neighbor is any fellow human being God puts in your path who is in need. Any person you meet is a potential neighbor. I know we can't help everybody. I know that's not possible. But everyone can be your neighbor. There's no limits to that. Don't ask the question, who's my neighbor? It is any person whom you can help. Any person who you might not naturally love, but you can show mercy to them because Christ has shown mercy to you. And yeah, I think people are put in our path by God who often are going to challenge the boundaries we have in our heart for what a neighbor is. To test us. Not in the kind of testing to see what we will do, but the kind of testing that helps us to grow. There are going to be times after you've heard this message. There's going to be times where you're going to see someone in need and that prejudice, whatever it is, is going to it's going to rise up in you. And I pray by God's grace that we recognize when it happens. He may put that person in our path right after we've been to church to offer our sacrifices. And He says, show mercy now. The question Jesus wants you to ask is not who is my neighbor. The question He wants you to ask is far more critical. What kind of neighbor am I? Am I a neighbor to the people that God puts in my path? Do I love God and display godly mercy? Am I abiding in Jesus so that can happen? And if I, if I am, then praise God for that grace. And let me keep abiding so I can grow in that mercy. 
And if I'm not, let me repent and start abiding so that that mercy can be found in me. In your worship guide, if you have one, if you'll look on the front, our prayer focus for this week, for this morning and then for this week ahead, is from Proverbs 11.25. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. The inference there is that God blesses those who bless others. That if you are the kind of person who seeks to refresh other people, God will refresh you. Jesus taught that in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I want to say to us this morning, God cares about human suffering, and He expects us to do the same. I know that there is a false gospel that has been built around alleviating human suffering at the expense of telling people the truth about sin and salvation, and that is wrong. But church, it is wrong for us in response to minimize the concern that God has for justice and injustice and human suffering while we cling to truthful gospel. We are to do both. We're not going to be able to fix every problem. We're not going to be able to resolve human suffering until it ends. Only Jesus can do that and bring it to a conclusion. But in our life, we are all going to have opportunities to ease someone else's burden and suffering. And God's going to put people in our path where we can do that in small ways and big ways. And He is calling us to refresh others. And His promise is, I'll refresh you. And so the question becomes, when that opportunity gets here, will we be ready through abiding with God and with one another? So, John, if you bring the lights down, I want to take just a moment. We've been doing this for the last couple of weeks. I didn't start off to do this every week, but I want us to take a moment and just silently pray and meditate. I know it is uh, it is one of those texts that I, I said earlier, it takes you through the ringer if you really... Think about what it's being said or what it's saying, but I do believe that the call to abide is a gracious and joyful call. Nobody in here is going to be a more merciful person by feeling guilty. We become more merciful by placing ourselves before Jesus and saying, all right, I need your help. I need you to build in me what I don't have in myself. But we do have to be to a place where we can see this is good and this is how I should live. So I want us to take a moment. Let's just quietly meditate on this passage, on what God is saying to us. Let's pray that we will be people. Agape will be filled with people who show mercy to others and refresh people so that we can be refreshed. And then in just a moment, I'll come up and I'll lead us into our time of closing and singing and giving you an opportunity to be prayed for.